Welcome to the Affordable Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Hune. Our mission is to help you gain your freedom from the exhausting, never-ending corporate rat race. Because time is our most valuable asset. And life's just too short to do work we hate. Thanks for slowing down. All right, welcome to the Affordable Freedom Podcast, everyone. My guest today is Carol Jean Whittington. Um, she's a globally recognized consultant and leader in the neurodiversity space, and she's dedicated her career to empowering ADHD um, and autistic professionals and fostering sustainable energy in their lives. And we're not talking about things like solar or wind energy. I assume, Carol Jean, we're talking about um, personal energy, you know, that, that motivates us to achieve things in life. So what does this have to do with affordable freedom? Well, Finance doesn't equal math. It actually equals psychology and human behavior. And the more we understand who we are as an individual, our money and career can be aligned with our values. And when that happens, things tend to work out well and financial freedom becomes the natural outcome. And Carol Jean is is great at helping people to understand themselves better. And I think has some really compelling insights into kind of the mental side of money. So Carol Jean, thanks so much for coming on today. Oh, it's great to be here, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation because so much of uh, of our adult lives, I think, and, and most of our lives, once we become like really consciously aware of money, and money is just energy in so many ways when, when we really reframe that. And it's, we become so incredibly attached to what we believe money to be. And that can drain our energy greatly, our personal energy. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, as I dive in more and more to the the mental side of money and the behavioral aspects of personal finance, I, I just realize more and more about how much that outweighs, you know, the technical, um, you know, industry um, aspects that I've always been trained in, you know, investment returns, maximizing tax deductions. At the end of the day, if your behavior isn't right, your wealth probably isn't going to grow that much. So super excited to get into that with you. But first, um, you didn't always know that you were a neurodistinct individual. You know, I'm curious to hear a little bit about what your life was like before you knew. And then how has your late identification for ADHD and autism changed your life? Oh, gosh. So there's a couple of questions in there, and I'm just going to kind of break them down as I go best I can. Um, first, I, I, I've i always known from a very early age, I think from as long as I had an awareness of myself, um, that I was different, that the way that I perceived things, the way that I thought about things was a little bit different from the people around me. Um and then at the same time, it was also within my my family group and within, you know, that close network was like, oh, that's just normal, right? Because we were all neurodivergent folks. We were all neurodistinct in some way. So it was normal in our world. But in the outside world, at school and, and within social groups, um, I knew I was different. And that was uncomfortable. Because part of how we're wired as humans on a biological level is to be safe. Number one, our brain seeks safety first. So part of that safety comes in those social networks of being accepted. And when others looked at me and went, 
oh gosh, that's weird. Why did you do that? What, what made you choose that particular, you know, way to eat a sandwich or, you know, whatever it happened to be. So from a very early journey, I became so heightenedly aware that I was different. So from there, I became a studier of human behavior and became, because it wasn't safe if I didn't fit in. So, you know, I took what we call masking to the professional level of camouflaging so that no one saw me, so that I fit in and I didn't stand out. And it felt really lonely and I felt so unseen. I felt like no one got me and I didn't get myself. And in my mid-20s, I was finally identified during college, um, you know, towards the end there, that I had ADHD. And I was like, oh, well, that answers some questions. That makes sense on some levels, but not all of it. And at 39 and 10 months, just shy of turning 40, I was going through the diagnostic process with my eldest son. And as we were visiting with the neuropsychologist, we'd been going out of town for this pretty long journey to see him. Um, it had been about two months, I guess we'd kind of gotten to know each other. I'd gone through all of the, you know, about your child questions. And as I'm reading through them, I'm thinking, well, that's not weird. I knew that, you know, and it had not clicked. And we were going through the, the conversation where he's telling me all about my child's diagnosis and all the things that he'll need and, you know, where he was good at. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you were missed. And I looked at him in my very literal thinking brain and I went, no, I wasn't. No one missed me. I'm right here. <laughs> he just sort of smiled and looks at me and he says, you need to come back and see me. I was like, okay. Had not registered. You know, we talk about processing delays and, and time and how we sort of take a minute sometimes to process information. And I don't know, maybe it was 10 or 15 minutes into the conversation and all of a sudden the penny dropped, so to speak. And I looked at him and I said, hang on, wait a minute are you saying I'm autistic too? He looked at me and he said, you should make an appointment on the way out and come back. <laughs> and I went, oh my gosh, okay. And, you know, and I thought, gosh, if I was missed and I know how hard life had been, I know how exhausted I had been for most of my life and how I felt, I didn't want my child to feel that way. So I poured everything into him. And at the end of that two-year period after identification, I probably hit one of the worst burnouts of my life. And at that point, I said to myself, well, I think I have to figure out what being autistic means to me and how does ADHD factor in the, into this? Because at the time, I didn't know how those two things work together or separately or anything. And I began this journey of who am I? because I had no idea who I was in the world because I had camouflaged for so long that I'd never asked myself any of those important questions that I think all humans should ask themselves. Like, what is important to you? What does your perfect day look like? What do you not like? <laughs> right? And in just in that whole journey, it began this step into this place I, I, I hoped existed and I wanted to exist, but I didn't know actually existed for me. But I have found not only does it exist for me, it's so much more than I ever imagined. And that's this place of thriving, empowered leadership in my own life. So there's a couple things that you were saying there that really um, struck a chord with me. Well, most of everything we talk about strikes a chord with me. Um, 
but you you mentioned how you didn't get yourself, you know, and you were always trying to fit in. I've talked about that many times. I've talked about it on this podcast many times. And that was something for me, you know, when I was a kid, I had different groups of friends that I bounced around to, never really figured out where I fit in. And like, I didn't think that made me any different. I just thought it was just kind of a normal thing, you know? Um, but then the other thing that really struck a chord with me is when you talked about how um, your identification came as a result of bringing your kids in, right? And I started thinking about like my son, you know, and thinking, well, boy, maybe I should take him in to just have like a checkup or something like a mental checkup. And then I started thinking, maybe everyone should do that. Like maybe everyone should bring their kids in just for like a mental health checkup, just like we do for a physical health checkup, you know, because when we were kids, we weren't taught to look out for these things. So maybe there is really important stuff that we've never known about ourselves that we, sh you know, should find out now. So anyways, all that to say, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, you know, just mental health checkups being a regular thing for people. I think a mental health checkup just starts with the conversation we have as one human to another. I don't think we have to go seek out specifically on, you know, I think there's places where we go seek out uh, professional advice, but I think when we are really just talking about the heart of mental health, number one, I think it's really important for people to understand that you already have mental health. You already are mental health. It's all of the beliefs and the thoughts and the layers of expectations and shoulds and supposed tos that disrupt and cover up the mental health that we already have, that each person has. And I think that's a big part of the conversation, you know, is how are we just having an everyday conversation with our kids, with ourselves, with our spouses, with the people that we're in relationship with? And not just saying, how are you doing? How was your day? But one of the two, I have two questions that I ask myself, my kids, my partner, people that I really care about, people that I meet for the first time. It's number one is how's your heart? That's a very different question than how are you doing? Because then we get that rote automatic response. Of, I'm fine. Fine is like the worst word in the, in the English language <laughs> because it stops. It stops that connection to ourselves and it stops that connection to the other person. And when you ask someone, how's your heart? You actually turn in inwardly and you think, well, how is my heart feeling? You don't do a physical check, right? Because the heart is the place that holds both our intellect and our emotion together. It's where everything is at, at a juncture. And if we are asking ourselves, how's my heart today? We're actually honoring our needs and our personal desires and our values. And then we can become more aligned to those things. When we're asking our kids, not how was your day at school or what did you learn, but how's your heart today? That's a very different question. You're going to elicit a different conversation, even from your teenager or your six-year-old. And the other question is, what sparks your joy or what's sparking joy for you right now in this moment? Because so often, you know, as you and I've talked about, Brian, it's 
we get caught in, in predictive thinking of trying to figure out what's in front of us, what's coming up, what could the future possibly look like? Or we're so busy looking backward to run a conversation through our head to figure out, did I understand everything correctly? Or why did I make that decision? Why did I say that? And then we're criticizing and judging and we're adding those layers that cover up our, our true authentic self, who we are already created to be. And we're disrupting the mental health we already have. Hmm. How's your heart today? I really like that question. And I wish, uh, I, I wish more people could be receptive to that. You know, I've always been somebody where like surface level small talk kind of bores me a little bit. Like I want to get into a conversation and know how you're doing, you know, and so hopefully we can get to a point where we, we feel a little bit more comfortable, you know, at, at a larger scale, having these meaningful conversations with it, with one another. Um, and if we, you know, and this is a really great place to kind of, you know, as I say, check yourself before you wreck yourself. It's if you ask yourself that question and you're, you feel physically activated or you feel resistance or avoidance to that question, then the next one is, huh, I'm compassionately curious about why I feel that way. What's the story I'm telling myself in this moment about why that, that question is uncomfortable or how could you ask me that? That's so weird. I'm not answering that. That's stupid. You know, if those things are coming up, that's a diff- that's a deeper place to really turn inward. Mm-hmm. So Carol Jean, as you know, um, this is something that I've been exploring as well, you know, um, and whether or not I choose to identify as neurodistinct, and this is something that I learned from you, like we don't necessarily have to identify, but simply learning more about how my brain functions has been sort of like this process of lifting a giant weight off my shoulders. So I thought I'd share some of the ways that I found that it seems to me that my brain maybe works a little bit differently or uniquely um, and get your thoughts because maybe somebody listening can relate in some small way. So would you be okay with that? Absolutely. Go for it. All right. Sounds good. So there's kind of three things when I really thought about it deeply. And one is I'm a really slow and deep thinker, <laughs> uh, which is good because, you know, deep thought, it reflective thought, you know, can be very valuable. But at the same time, the, you know, off the cuff conversations um, c- can be pretty difficult. Like I don't have that quick reflex thinking kind of in the in the moment. So that's always been a challenge for me. Um, the other thing is the nervous sweats, which you and I have talked about, like hands getting sweaty, armpits getting sweaty, um, you know, whether it's during an interaction or just thinking about an upcoming interaction. And then the other thing is constantly living in the future, like constantly picturing what I want life to look like, which then almost leads to being sort of let down by the present a little bit. So I think like all of these things over time have made it a little bit harder you know, for me to fit in and, and probably contributed to the burnout that I experienced in my career. So first off, I'll stop. And I'd just love to get some of your thoughts as a professional on my situation. And then, you know, maybe even how this is common 
with other people as well, if it is. Oh, it is. You're not alone. <laughs> you're, you are in beautiful, good company of millions and millions of people. So let's start with the first thing, which is that interaction, that processing speed. First of all, it's important to understand how how the brain development, how brain development works and why processing times vary from person to person and are specific in how they develop in certain neurotypes. So if we take, and there's some great research out there. And so this one study took, and I'm going to use the terms and I'll kind of translate here. So the research study took neurotypical brains, right? Typical developmental brains. And this is from a medical deficit model language, which I don't love. So I'm going to say it's a neurodominant brain because I don't believe it is the majority brain. I just think it's the, the brain type that wrote our current history and we're rewriting it. So we have a quote unquote neurotypical brain, and then we have an autistic brain. And they were put into an fMRI. That's a functional magnetic resonance imaging. And that's where it goes in and it, it looks at the oxygen and blood flow in certain areas of the brain light up in different colors based on how activated they are. Okay. So the test was, the research was, we are going to give an executive function cognitive load task. So you're going to execute a task while we're looking at your brain in this fMRI. And we're going to give the exact same task to both neurotypes. And we're going to see what parts of the brain light up. So in the neurotypical brain, three to four areas light up and they're pretty concentrated. They're pretty close together. They're not very big in their, their area of coverage. They're pretty condensed. In the exact same task in an autistic brain, we saw five to seven areas of the brain lighting up in a much larger area. So when we know that two brains are processing in different areas, one is more tight and refined, three to four areas in a very tight concentration versus five to seven in a much broader, broader concentration. What we also have to recognize behind that data is that the autistic brain is processing more information in larger areas, in more areas of the brain. So therefore it takes a little bit more time than it does in a neurotypical brain. And one of the contributing factors to that is something called neural pruning. So in the development of the human brain, when we're children, our brains are incredibly smart. Our, body, our bodies are the most incredible supercomputers ever created. And what happens is in neurotypical development, the brain evaluates the environment and says, okay, well, we only really need this information to be taken in to stay safe and alive because our brain does two things. Number one, it keeps us safe, keeps us breathing. Number two, it seeks to conserve energy to promote number two, keeping us alive. So part of step two in what our brain does is we automate things because then we aren't putting as much energy into each one of those steps. For example, we do not think about how we brush our teeth from I'm going to pick up the brush with my right hand. I will put the toothpaste on the on the bristles and then I will brush, you know, and you don't think through each one of those steps. You may have when you first started, like anything we learned, but then it was automated, right? So then less of our brain energy, our higher concentration energy is now being automated. 
And that's the most powerful part of our brain. And what you were talking about is that experience of I'm, you know, and you, you termed yourself as a slow processor, a deeper thinker. Well, I want to just disrupt that. Number one, you're not a slow processor. You're processing more information and therefore you can take in more data and you're going to see things, connect information, process, see structures and connections that people who don't think the way you do will miss. That is necessary to human development. So why would we put a negative connotation around how you process? That's important. Hmm. Hmm. Is that kind of registering? Is this making sense? Is this kind of giving you some insight into you? It is. Absolutely. I've always had, you know, kind of like racing thoughts, thinking about a lot of different things, you know, at the same time, there's kind of like this, uh, always like a constant internal conversation going on. And so that's like, sometimes I miss something that's going on. Like it could be a conversation in the same room. And I'm like, wait, what? I was just kind of lost in my mind a little bit. (laughs) So it definitely resonates with me. And hopefully it resonates with others as well, because I, I just have to think that it's not as uncommon as, as most people think. Um, I think there's a lot of people out there that are probably like me who just kind of deny that there's anything different about them and just continue trying to fit into the status quo. And, you know, we have to really question the status quo and do we buy into it? Is it, is it ours? Do we want that? We have to choose because life is choice and everything that we experience comes from what we choose. And it's easy to say, I don't have a choice, but we always have a choice. It's how are we perceiving and processing the choice? And some other layers I kind of want to add to this processing conversation that I think is really important, especially when we're talking about you know, how we feel about money and our finances, it's really important to just check in with the fact that if we aren't aware of how we process information and and what matters and is important to us, you know, we make choices with our money. We choose where we're going to invest or spend our money. And sometimes it's, am I spending it because I need to feel better? Is it I'm trying to meet an emotional safety need that's going unmet? And is it a dopamine hit? You know, is it I need to to have things in my life, you know, and I get them and I feel good for a little bit, but then after a little bit, it's I forget about it or it doesn't have the same impact. And, you know, for me as an ADHD or that was part of the journey, but I also had to understand how was my brain working? And once I understood that, I could also recognize, well, how does my spending follow that or support that? Or how is that, you know, maybe taking me down a road that I didn't want to go down (laughs) with my finances? And it's a really important thing because everything that we think shows up in our body. And, you know, like you mentioned, sort of the sweaty hands and like, oh my gosh, I'm profusely perspirating, you know, I'm spitzing over here. Our nervous system is hardwired into our sensory system. And as neurodistinct people, we are a sensory wired human. 
We are wired to be sensory sensitive. We are wired to take in all of these things because, you know, as I mentioned about neural pruning in a neurotypical brain, it says, oh, I don't need those, those neural pathways. I don't need that information to survive. So my brain's going to turn those off. In neurodistinct brains, that same type of neural pruning does not happen. It happens to a much lesser degree. So what remains is we have much vaster neural networks. And so we're processing more information. Our sensory system is taking in more information. And so therefore, there is a processing delay in perception because there's so much data that we're constantly processing. And for some people, it's it's different for, for everybody to a certain degree. The way that we're processing information, some people are constantly revisiting information like it's brand new every time. The brain isn't creating an automated system for it. There are some areas of my life that my brain will do that. There are others where each time I am thinking through each step. And when your sensory system is, is it full on and you are taking in all the data, when it's hardwired into your nervous system, it's going to respond if you aren't aware of that and you have not put things in place that are helping you to regulate your nervous system and your sensory system. So it's really important to know your unique sensory profile blueprint because every human has one. But as neurodistinct people, we really need to be aware of it because the way we sensory seek, that is the places that we naturally gravitate towards because those things bring energy to us. The things that we sensory avoid or that we find are really taxing for us that hurt us or are painful even, those are things that drain our energy. And that's the number one place where I start working with clients who are coming to me in burnout and they're like, look, I, I am just all over the place. I am overwhelmed. My body is shutting down. It's because our nervous systems have been on supercharge, responding to so much information and data and not recognizing that I've got to have some space so that I can recognize what's pouring into my sensory system. What actually do I need? What have I just been pushing through, tolerating, or, you know, bucking up buttercup because I believed I had to be able to do this, but it is one of the biggest sensory drainers that I have. And when we can just start to look at those things and just recognize, hey, my palms are sweaty and I've got, you know, there's also some co-occurring health conditions that go within our neurotype that those types of things are just part of our body. But, you know, when we're not able to regulate our body temperature as easily due to the neurodistinctness of our bodies, then we're assigning a story about why that's happening. It's like, oh, I must be nervous. Oh, being in social situations makes my body sweat. And so therefore that's not a good thing. Well, maybe the, there's other things happening and it, it's not always about immediately saying it's because I'm wrong. So one thing that you said there that I want to definitely come back to is you talked about space, right? And I feel like creating space to understand yourself a little better and, and you know, try to put yourself into a better mental and physical environment, um, I, I think is so important. And a big part of creating that space is you know, the financial foundation that you have in place. But before I do, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your opinion in terms of 
creating an environment that you personally can thrive in, I think there's there's kind of like two aspects of that. There's the internal environment and how you understand and regulate your own emotions, and then the external environment, your workspace, whatever it is, where you're spending your time. So there's these sort of two different forms of stimulus. What are your thoughts or, or what do you recommend somebody, um, how, how do they address these things? Is there a certain strategy that somebody should use? Each person's going to have their own strategy. I'm I'm a huge believer. I, I have a book out called Unleashing Sustainable Energy. And it's about transforming spicy burnout for ADHD autistic professionals. But it's really for minds of all kinds because when we're looking at over the last three years, I have interviewed and had respondents globally to my my research, my burnout research project. And in that, we've had people, you know, over half a million people in 93 countries respond. And so we've got some really great data. And in the top three areas of unmet need, because burnout is essentially consistent and chronic unmet needs. In that, one of the top three is the unmet need of emotional safety. And for a lot of people, when they hear emotional safety, it's like, oh, I need to be able to feel safe to express my emotions to other people. And that's true, but it begins internally first. And it's, I don't feel safe within my own emotions. I don't feel safe to have the emotions that I feel or my emotions feel so big and I don't understand what they are or they're coming in so fast that I don't, and they are triggering and activating my physical body response and that doesn't feel safe. So I'm not going to look at those or I'm going to, I'm going to shut those down. And that's not a conscious choice. It is usually become a safety response because our body doesn't feel safe because our mind can't make sense of it. And for a lot of neurodistinct people, myself included, I'm alexithymic. So that doesn't mean that I can't feel emotions. It means that I don't always have the words for the emotions that I'm feeling. And when that happens, we don't feel safe. So for a lot of people that I work with, we have a conversation. I was like, do you feel like a shark? You can't stop. You're constantly moving because you're seeking the next thing. You're always trying to move forward. You're always doing something. It's not, it doesn't feel safe to have space. Because if I have space, I'm going to have to experience the things my body's feeling and I'm going to have to figure it out. And I don't trust that I might do it quote unquote correctly because the world told mm. me that I didn't in some way. And so I stopped doing it and we get into this habit of, I have to do doing something. And it also goes to that heart of authenticity the, one of the other top unmet needs is not feeling like your authentic self, not feeling like you can express who you really are. And that's one of the other biggest contributing factors to burnout is what I call the integrity gap. And it's not a lack of integrity. It's the gap between who you innately know yourself to be internally, whether you have the language to describe it or not, and how you're actually showing up in the world externally. And the larger the gap, 
between who you feel innately yourself to be and how you're actually showing up and presenting yourself in the world, the bigger the gap, the larger that energy vortex and the least, the less authentic and connected you feel. Hmm. I feel like that just hits Man, you. This, yeah, that, that resonates a lot. Um, <clears throat> part of this whole process, you know, since I quit my job back in 2020 and have started my own business and been expressing myself on social media with LinkedIn, this has just been this process of finally like trying to be that authentic self, trying to um, express myself a little more because it had always been, you know, held in in the past. So it's, yeah, it's resonating a lot with me, everything that you're saying. So again, going back to that concept of safe, like creating or, or not safe space, creating space so that you can, you know, um, start to learn these things about yourself. You have to have, so I'm, I alluded to financial space earlier, cause that's kind of what I help people do is create this sort of plan where they can step back and say, okay, I'm good. Let's put in the work to figure these things out. Right. But it doesn't matter how much financial space that you have. If you haven't made the mental space to actually confront some of these things and, and, design your life around them, right? So I think that's such an important point for people that are listening because if you go on LinkedIn, you'll see business coach, you know, business strategy coach, you'll see 10X your growth coach. Before you do any of that stuff, talk to the life coach, the mental health coach, the one that's going to help you create the mental space to figure out how you can add the most value to the world. Because if you can do that, you can build a successful business around it, right? Absolutely. And you know, that's one of the things that is probably one of the most impactful parts of the unveiling method. And I created this methodology for myself. It was an evolution and a creation that came out of its own necessity in my life. And that part of that journey is not just unveiling who you are as a person, uh, who you align with, you know, what are the things that you value, you know, what are your passion drivers, but it's also, what am I creating with intention, not by default, not by societal norms, but creating my thrive destination statement. We call it a TDS in the unveiling method. And it's, it's interesting because when you really start to pick into it and you really start to dig in and you get very compassionately, there's the keyword, compassionately curious about what matters most to you. I discovered I don't need $10,000 a month. I don't need, you know, $100,000 car, all of these things that I thought were the external things that told me that I was successful that I was worthy, that what I did in the world was valuable. I had to start really getting compassionately curious to say, well, how much money do I really need to live the life that is important to me so that we're living comfortably, that our needs are provided, our basic needs are provided for, but that also those other things that are important, those things that are part of our heart and our passion drivers, how we're going out and who we're being in the world. 
you know, money we talked about when we started the conversation is energy. But for a lot of us, the energy that we've charged money with in our mind and in our heart and in our body is a very negative charge. It's one that we physically feel very stressed and reactive around. But money's neutral. Money doesn't have a charge until you give it one. And that's all about the thoughts you got about it. Hmm. And the way that we start to move forward in that to really harness it, because money is just a tool that serves our greater heart and desire and our safety and existence in a lot of ways. But if we get so entrenched in the story about what that is and, the, and, and not really saying, is that accurate for me now? Do I believe that? Is that important for me? Then we can put any address in a map app on our phone and it'll take us there. But are we going where we really want to end up? And that Thrive Destination Statement is such an important part of our money journey. It's important and critical to our life journey. And how are we starting to slow down and really take stock and ask those hard questions? Are we ready to get comfortable being uncomfortable in the messy middle? Because it is going to get incredibly messy. And it's our degree of tolerance for messy in this moment that allows us to to reach and be in that destination. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, Brian, and I want to touch on this because I think it's so important. So many of us are busy planning and living in the future and or ruminating and moving into the past that we miss the present. And the present moment is truly all that we have. And when we are in that future thinking and, and predictive thinking mode, a lot of that has to go back to that root of, unmet emotional safety need. Because if I don't like where I am right now, number one, it was our choices that created it. And we do have to take ownership of that. And that's going to really activate and charge and confront a lot of folks right there. You're responsible for your life. Where you Mm -hmm. are right now, if you don't like it, it's that way because you created it. And here's the great part. If you created what you don't like, you also have the energy, the agency, the authority, and the empowerment. You are the leader and you get to choose differently and create what you do want. And if you don't know what that is, start talking to other people. Start turning inward and asking yourself those quality questions because when you are constantly future predicting and you come back to your life and you're totally let down and you're dejected and you're really feeling crappy about where you are, What's the story you're at, you're telling yourself about that? Because when you can stay present in the moment and you can really say, man, I'm doing my best and my best is already worthy. I'm already worthy. And where I am is simply in this present moment and is not where I will be five minutes from now because I am constantly through my choice and my intention creating my future self. And I am already moving to the place where I want to be. And I am grateful and I am honoring of all of the things that have led me to where I am right now. And usually we can't do that because we are so busy rejecting ourselves in the moment as not worthy and not good enough. But you are. Hmm. That's really powerful. Um, just such a powerful mindset transformation 
that you described there and you know or as you were talking about you know how money is just neutral there's so many things out there that are just neutral they just are right and we get to choose how we respond to those things the power of our mind as i'm learning you know is is just amazing right so going back to money um you talked about having a negative view on money um, something that usually is hardwired into us when we're a child versus having a positive view on money. Is that kind of like the the scarcity to the abundance mindset when it comes to money or how does that tie in? I, I wouldn't even say scarcity to abundance, but I say there's a real big shift in just the awareness of what money actually is because we tend to assign such strong emotions and have stories around what money is. And it comes from our experiences. It comes from the people in our life, who we grew up with, where we grew up and what we heard. So, you know, money doesn't grow on trees, money. You got to work, you got to work hard and you got to work long hours and you are exchanging your time for dollars. Essentially, you know, you gotta, you gotta get up at the crack of dawn early bird gets the worm and all of those things. And I think when we just start to really understand the nature of what money is, is it's, it is energy, but understanding that it's neutral in the sense that it only has the charge that we give it. Money can be used as a tool that serves us. It can also be used as a tool that hurts us. It's our choice in how we use it. And I think also it is for me, it was not from scarcity to abundance, but it was fear and, um, and not understanding what money really is and that there is infinite amounts of it because it's energy. So from the scientific approach, if we look at energy, be that our personal, physical energy, mental energy, emotional energy, and we look at the energy of money, it is infinite because energy is not, from a scientific standpoint, energy is not created or destroyed. Energy is only exchanged. It is only transferred. Therefore, there is infinite amounts of energy. So it's not hard to come by. There is infinite amount of money. There's infinite amount of energy. But we, as the empowered, conscious leaders in our life, through our choices, through the story, through how we are assigning belief and charges to anything that we have in energy, be that our emotions, our thoughts, our physical body, our, our money, when we can shift to a place of awareness and choice and being open to recognizing the universal law that there is an infinite abundance of this and it is already mine and I don't have to earn it. But through the choices that I make, I am bringing it to myself. And it is flowing to me and through me. We are exchanging and transferring. And when we start to look at that, then we stop operating on this constant deficit cycle. Like spoon theory, is, I think, is great in the sense that it allows us to allocate, like if I start the day with 10 spoons of energy and it takes five for me to do this task, I have five left and then I'm going to allocate those very carefully and I'm going to protect them. 
for the rest of the day. That's operating from this scarcity and yes, the scarcity mindset, but it's operating from a place of deficit of like, I'm not going to get any more. When in fact, it's because I'm not choosing to also look at how do I harmonize this? Because not only do things flow out, there is this universal law of reciprocity. Not only do things flow out, things flow in. And how am I looking at, not only how am I expending energy in my life, mental, thought, emotional, physical, money, but how am I bringing it in? What am I doing to create opportunities for it to flow in? And if everything's crammed up with space, all your space is filled with all the crap that you tell yourself about how you're not good enough and how you got to work harder and how you didn't do it right and how it needs to look this way, but this isn't how it actually looks right now. There's no space for anything to come in. It's like that old conversation and adage that when you open your hand to give, your hand is open to receive. Hmm. And so much of, so much of our life, we are walking around tight fisted around everything because we're afraid that we won't receive anything but we've never opened ourselves to the opportunity. We've never opened our hand to receive. And we block ourselves because we don't feel that we're worthy of receiving. We're not good enough. We haven't earned it. So for me, like the, the biggest transformation that I've gone through with the way I think about money is it used to be this goal. Now it's just the tool. So when you talk about uh, money being a tool, uh, that just really speaks to me. You know, you can use that tool to, you know, have nice stuff and there's nothing wrong with nice stuff, right? If it makes you happy and it brings you sustainable joy, you can use it to, to try to create status, you know, um, you can use it to create freedom, more freedom, you know, to build a life around who you are as an individual. And that's, where I've kind of landed on is like, it's best used as a tool to, to create freedom, to live the life the way that I want to live it. So that's the most profound shift I've had is just looking at it simply as a tool and kind of removing all of my emotional attachment to it. Oh, so, and I, I'm going to do one of those beautiful things that I love to do. And I'm going to give you a question. Yes. Why are you not free already? Why are you not free right now? Free from? Well, how do you define freedom? Why is money the key to freedom? Why are you not already free? I'm already free. Um, but I need, you know, you, you need money to sustain your lifestyle. Okay. Right? So, like, my goal with making money is just to continue to have the freedom to do this work that's bringing me joy and has a lot of meaning to me. So it's, it's one of the questions I ask. It's like, we have to define freedom. We have to define success. And we have to get clear on it. And it's, it, it's going to evolve and change. Because all of the things that we feel like we're chasing, like if freedom is this thing that I have to, I don't have it yet, then we feel like we're always lacking. And we're falling short of. And I found that money is the tool not to freedom for me. This is my personal freedom. Money isn't the freedom for me. Money is simply giving me additional choices. 
because when I have less money, I have less options. I have less choices. And I, when I have more money, it gives me more options and more choices. So it's a freedom of choice, but I'm already yeah. free. Yes. That's a really good distinction. Yeah, we're already free, but we'll have more choices. It's kind of like, you know, there's you, you always remember the the old saying that money doesn't buy happiness, which it doesn't, but it can expand your happiness, right? So it's kind of the same thing. It doesn't buy freedom, but it can expand the freedom. So I think that's a really, really healthy way to look at it. Um, so you mentioned earlier that the that you know the the old saying that money doesn't grow on trees. And I don't know, as we're having this conversation about it and, and everything that I'm learning from you, maybe you're teaching us how to plant those money trees that supposedly don't exist. Because, again, if you look at it like energy, then you can use your energy to, you know, create value. And if you create value, money's going to find you. So we'll uh, end on that note. But Carol Jean... Um, I wanted to make sure the listeners know where they can go to, to find more information on you. Yep. The company is Mind Your Autistic Brain. The talk show is Beyond Autistic Burnout. And there you can take the spicy pepper burnout quiz to find out what level of spicy pepper you might be experiencing. Because currently we have over 89% of people in the workforce saying in the last year they've experienced some degree of burnout. And if that's you please go take the spicy pepper burnout quiz. Find out where you are from a level one poblano pepper all the way up to a level five ghost pepper where you might be so hot you're not. There's different steps to restoration based on your pepper level, and I share those with you. So be sure to go take that quiz. And if you want to go deeper into the unveiling method, my book, Unleashing Sustainable Energy is available and Hyperlexic Publishing has broken glass ceilings and accessibility by publishing the very first book to not only include easy to read font, but open dyslexic font, audio and video with captions. Awesome. So the website is mindyourautisticbrain.com. Is that right? mindyourautisticbrain.com and we are Mind Your Autistic Brain on social media and uh, Beyond Autistic Burnout on podcast and LinkedIn and YouTube. Awesome. And the podcast I just saw was it's ranked in the top 5% for self-help. Is that right? On Spotify? Yes. Yes, we sure are. So amazing. Congrats on that. Doing a lot of good work out there. So thanks again for coming on and um, always enjoy the conversations and look forward to having another one at some point in the future. Me too. You're going to be on my show soon. So you guys be sure and tune in over there. Thanks for listening today. And if you have a moment, check out my website at reflectivewealth.com. Everything you need to know about my business is there. Because if there's one thing I've learned in my career, transparency and accountability are critical to a healthy financial services industry. Thanks and see you next time.